if I were to ask you what is joy, I wonder how you would answer that. When you think about followers of Christ in the world today, when you think about the church, do you think of the church um, as a happy place or as an unhappy place? Do you think of followers of Christ as happy people or unhappy people? I remember when I was a kid, my pastor would say, happiness and joy are two different things. I remember he said, you know, happiness is dependent on your happenings, and joy is something deeper. And I have pretty much thought that for like a few decades now, uh, but I am starting to change my mind on that. I'm sure I've repeated that idea here, but I'm beginning to change my mind about the separation between joy and happiness, and today I want to tell you why. No matter what comes to your mind when you hear the word joy, the Savior that we celebrate at Christmas came with good news of great joy. And he himself is full of joy. And the scriptures say that as followers of Christ, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. A fruit of God's Holy Spirit is the fruit of joy. So what is this joy? On the third Sunday of Advent today, we were, we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about joy and happiness and a man named Simeon. So let's start with joy. First of all, the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke chapters 1 and 2, when you just look at all the references to rejoicing and joy, you see it's all throughout the Christmas story. This is just in Luke 1 and 2. The angels announce that the baby Jesus is great news of, uh, is news of great joy for all people. Simeon and Anna react with joy to the dedication of Jesus at the temple. The angels announce tidings of joy, this is earlier in the story, to Zechariah. John the Baptist leaped with joy in Elizabeth's womb. Mary rejoices. Elizabeth's neighbors rejoice with her. There is so much joy in this story. It's almost like over and over again in the Christmas story, we find God announcing the birth of Jesus, his son, almost like a parent with a birth announcement, with great joy. And I wonder if we have perhaps, sometimes, created a false dichotomy in the church. For many people, uh, we often talk about joy in kind of an odd way, as if it is very disconnected from emotions. Author Randy Elkhorn says this in his book, Happiness. An ungrounded, dangerous separation of joy from happiness has infiltrated the Christian community. Happiness has, he says, been a bridge between the church and the world, one we can't afford to burn. He goes on to say, depicting joy in contrast with happiness has obscured the true meaning of both words. Joyful people are typically glad and cheerful. They smile and laugh a lot. To put it plainly, they're happy. So what does the Bible say about joy? Usually, when the Bible's talking about joy, it's referring to a happy state of heart. It's actually interesting. If you look up words like in a Greek lexicon, um, the definitions for joy, happy, glad, merry, they all use those other words to define themselves. It's almost like you could imagine circles that are overlapping. These words in the Bible are related. They're connected to each other. 
all throughout the scriptures, we read about this idea of joy. In Psalm 47, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Isaiah 9, you've multiplied the nations. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Ecclesiastes 9, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. So we see throughout the Bible that joy in God has a connection to your experience of earthly happiness. It is not disconnected from your emotions like we often talk about it. Now, I think it is important um, to, to talk about, like, there's not two different kinds of joy. Joy and happiness, actually, and I'm changing my mind on this, but I think they, they actually are connected. They're the same thing. The joy we have in Christ is not something separate from what we mean when we talk about happiness, from what people mean by happiness. So um, author John Piper says it this way. If you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. Now, when we talk about joy, we're not talking about pasting on a fake smile in the midst of life's difficulties. We are talking about discovering a reasonable, durable, delightful happiness in Christ that transcends difficult circumstances. And that vision for that kind of joy, for that kind of happiness, is built on who God is, what God's done, and what God is doing. Until Christ comes again and cures our world totally, of course, our happiness will be like punctured by times of great sorrow. But that doesn't mean that we can't be predominantly happy in Christ. Because being happy is really to be the norm rather than the exception. And that's not just wish wishful thinking. That is based in a solid reality. And the reality is this. I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And I live, where do I live? I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That kingdom's not in trouble. So neither am I. So it is based in a solid reality that we live in this strong and unshakable kingdom of God. God secured our eternal happiness with the cross, with the empty tomb. God is with us right now in this moment. God is with you. And whatever you face tomorrow, God is with you. And so the scriptures say things like, rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I'll say it, rejoice. Be glad in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Over and over we hear these words in scripture. Now, joy, as we're talking about, joy, happiness in the Bible, it is different than like positive thinking. Positive thinking would be focus on good things, ignore bad things like akuna matata, 
right? That's different than the joy and the happiness that the Bible's talking about. It's not talking about, like, God is a genie. We're not talking about, like, the prosperity gospel. We're not talking about, like, you can just name it and claim it. If you have enough faith, then you will always be healthy, wealthy, and successful in this life. We're not talking about that. Better mo- a better model or a better picture for the joy that we're talking about would be, like, people like Amy Carmichael. She lived from 1867 to 1951. She brought the gospel, the love of God, to countless children that she rescued from temple prostitution in India. She experienced herself great physical suffering. In 55 years as a missionary, she never had a furlough. And yet, she said these words, there's nothing dreary and doubtful about life. It's meant to be continually joyful. We're called to a settled happiness in the Lord whose joy is our strength. Joy is about that sort of settled happiness that God makes possible despite life's difficulties. It's rich. It's durable. It's a happiness that's ours because Christ was born and lived and died and is present with us always and will come again. So here is why I think this conversation matters, for two reasons at least. First of all, um, many followers of Christ, myself included for a long time, we've been dividing joy from happiness. And then what you can do is claim to have this deeper joy and it kind of gives you an excuse to never face or address unhappiness. If you are an unhappy person, if you are experiencing unhappiness, that's actually something to get curious about. That is actually something to face, not to excuse it like, well, I've got deeper joy in the Lord even though I'm totally miserable. The second reason it matters is because people ought to See the deep roots of your joy and want to have a part in it. Randy Elkhorn says this, A hundred years ago, every Christian knew the meaning of joy. Today, if you ask a group of Christians what does joy mean, most will grope for words with only one emphatic opinion, that joy is different from happiness. He says, This is like saying rain isn't wet or ice isn't cold. Often people will say, well, God is not concerned with your happiness. He's concerned with your holiness. But what if God is concerned with both your happiness and your holiness, and what if those are tied together? Perhaps we've created some false dichotomies when it comes to this idea of joy. The false dichotomy of joy and happiness, it's actually a recent phenomenon. Historically, followers of Christ did not separate joy and happiness like that. So Thomas Watson lived 1620 to 1682, a Puritan preacher. He said these words, speaking of God, he has no design upon us but to make us happy. Who should be cheerful if not the people of God? Puritan preacher. Another person, Charles Spurgeon, British preacher, um, lived 1834 to 1892. He said this, those who are beloved of the Lord 
must be the most happy and joyful people to be found anywhere upon the face of the earth. This idea of separating joy and happiness is a rather new phenomenon. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, yeah, I grew up in one of those happy, clappy churches. And uh, everybody was masquerading around with like a fake smile on their face while their lives secretly were falling apart. That's not what we're talking about. But that is fair. I've experienced that too. I don't think the gospel invites us into denial or to fake it till you make it. I think honesty and truth-telling and living in reality is the only place we encounter God. And yet, our unhappiness, our unhappy emotions are still perhaps inviting us to look deeper in our lives. Where are my sources of joy? Where are my sources of strength? I mean, what do you do when you're in the midst of difficult circumstances? How do you experience the joy of the Lord during hard times? What do you do when you are waiting for the fulfillment of an unmet longing and it goes on and on and on? In the Gospel of Luke, the writer says that Jesus was born and Mary and Joseph took him to the temple. That was what the law, the Torah, said to do, and that's what they did. So we're told this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting. Luke's going to tell us in a minute what he's waiting for, but let's just pause there for a minute, because he's waiting. He's in the temple, day after day after day, and he is waiting. And we, right now, are in a season of Advent, which is the season of waiting. Waiting in this world is inevitable. Waiting on the Lord is optional. Simeon is waiting. Many times what happens in our lives is we think, I will have joy when I have the fulfillment of that circumstance that I'm waiting on. Once that circumstance is solved, then I'll have joy. Why don't you have joy? Because of this circumstance. Often that's what we say. It's interesting because we tend to focus on our circumstances like that. And in this world, troubles and challenges are constant. But here's the thing. Happy people will look beyond their circumstances, find opportunities for a deeper kind of happiness. Even secular research indicates there is actually very little correlation between circumstances in your life and how happy you are. Very little. And yet we tend to say, well, when this circumstance changes, then I'll be happy, then I'll be joyful. But research shows there's very little correlation between the circumstances of people's lives and how happy they are. Okay, back to Simeon. So Simeon, um, is man in Jerusalem, Simeon, he's righteous, he's devout, he's waiting. What's he waiting for? Luke says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's another person there present in this story. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. 
She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were waiting. Here's the thing. Anna and Simeon, they're not just waiting around. It's not a passive thing. It's not an apathetic thing. They are waiting, what? On the consolation of Israel for something really big. It's much more than just their circumstances. It's much more than like job, money, relationship. The consolation of Israel. It's kind of prophet speak. The idea is God is going to come down and make everything right in this world. No more deceit. No more sin. No more shame. No more violence. No more broken families. They're waiting for what they would call the kingdom of God. For up there to come down here, like starting in my own heart and then making everything right in this world. So day after day, they are waiting. They are waiting for the Messiah. And today, we are waiting for the return of the Messiah. So day after day, every day, go into the temple, go into the temple. Has the time come yet? Not yet. God is today the day? Not yet. Every day, not yet, not yet, not yet. Everything is still a mess. And you got to picture this. One day, Simeon comes, and there's this child. And the scriptures say this. Mary and Joseph brought the child. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And it's interesting, he praised God. There is joy in this moment. And when you read it, it, it's like Luke begins, the first word is now. It's like not yet, not yet, not yet. Now you may dismiss your servant in peace. After this lifetime of waiting. And it's interesting because circumstantially you could say, but nothing has changed. Rome is still in power. Orphans are still abandoned. Widows are still alone. Injustice is still rampant. Violence is still everywhere. Israel is still a victim. People are still suffering. So what's different now? It's just that there's this baby now. This child is here now. And that makes everything different. Not because Israel's circumstances are going to get a lot better. In fact, in a way, they're going to kind of get worse. But now Jesus is present in those painful circumstances. So Simeon, this old man, it's like day after day after day after day. It's today the day. Not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Jesus comes and he says, now. And that's how it is. That is how it is in our lives as well. When the presence of God comes into a situation, comes into your hurt, your pain, your loneliness, your divorce, your bankruptcy, your unemployment, not yet, not yet, not yet, becomes now. And it's not now everything is all better, circumstantially. It is now God is present. Now I'm not alone. Now I can go on. And that brings great joy. It's like a rich and durable joy. It is a settled happiness. Why? Because Emmanuel, God with us. 
this week, I, I participated in this scripture circle with a rabbi, a rabbi who travels around the world facilitating these conversations on scripture. And um, we were looking at this passage in Ezekiel uh, where the people of God are taken into exile in Babylon. And I want to just close with this thought because... Uh, When we're talking about happiness, we're talking about joy, and we're talking about where it's found, and we're talking about unmet longings and this deeper journey in our hearts and in our souls. Um, We're we're looking at this passage with this rabbi, and the people of God are taken into exile. They're taken into captivity in Babylon. But what's interesting is the Babylonians, they do not, um, first of all, they don't kill the Israelites in this moment. Um, They also don't enslave them. What they do is they take the elite and they bring them right into the center of the empire. So what happens is the people of God all of a sudden go into a place, Babylon, where yes, there's idol worship and yes, they're in captivity and yes, this is exile, but in Babylon, there's a huge river running through. So there's water security. In Babylon, there's two of the four largest libraries in the world, for those of you who love that. In Babylon, there's the famous hanging gardens, so there's beauty. In Babylon, there's food security, there's water security, there's job security. In other words, exile, captivity, it's actually looking pretty good. It's actually like, this is kind of like a promotion. If this is captivity, like sign me up, right? In fact, when the people can finally leave exile, some of them just choose to stay. What is happening here? In so many ways, Babylon can be like a picture of what is happening right now for many of us on earth. This world is not our true home. But sometimes we get taken captive by the luxuries of this world, and they become the basis for your happiness. And so the challenge is, how do you remain faithful to God while living in exile? I mean, let us not forget, we are aliens and strangers in this world. This is not our true home because we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Jesus said, be in the world, but don't be of the world. See, the thing is, Babylon was a land of idol worship. But it does not take, like, a literal golden calf for me to bend the knee and worship. There are plenty of other cultural idols that I can bend the knee in worship of, looking to those for my source of happiness. And those idols have names, right? Not all of them are bad. Sports, politics, family, comfort, money, success, affirmation. When you're talking about worshiping an idol, it may be a good thing. We're talking about my relationship with that thing. So, for example, sports, not a bad thing. But my relationship with sports can turn that thing into an idol in my life. So the challenge in captivity 
it's really an invitation. It's an invitation to return to God. The question for us living in exile, I mean, you think about the word captivity, the root word of that captivity is captive. So when I am unhappy, that's like data. I can get curious about that, and I can say to myself, what am I captive to? What am I being captivated by? Because the scriptures teach that Jesus is joy. He is the source of our joy, that we live in him and we have joy. But just like the Israelites in Babylon, sometimes my heart gets taken captive by all sorts of other things other than God. Joy is found when I am captive to Christ and the kingdom of heaven. And so captivity, you could say unhappiness, becomes this invitation to freedom. When I notice it, I get curious. What's holding my attention? Where am I looking for life? Where is my joy found? That is why it's worth paying attention to that unhappiness, getting curious about it. Uh, in John 15, we read, God is joyful. When we live in God, we live in joy. Jesus said, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So may you, this Advent, experience the true source of joy which is Christ. May you practice joy through gratitude and obedience to him, and may you extend that joy to those around you. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for the joy that you bring. Thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Thank you that you invite us to live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Thank you that that kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are we. May we live increasingly with an awareness of your presence, which is always in the present. And may we worship you together now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.